The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Let's pray. Father, you put before us this morning your word. Your word in 1 Corinthians, and it connects to something that Jesus said in Luke 9, calling whoever would come to come take up your cross and follow me. To deny yourself, to die to yourself. And Father, as we consider that this morning, I pray that you would speak with just the, uh, just the right tone through my words. I may strike the wrong tone, but Lord, you change that so that it lands on people's ears in just the right way. To speak just the right tone to each person here. To call them to come to you denying themselves. Lord, we all come from different places in that For me, it is a tall order. And I pray, give us grace. Commission Your Spirit to run among us and have His way in our hearts. Spirit of God, we look to You to illumine the text for us and to to help it to make sense to us, to convict us with it. We look to You for Your ministry of witnessing to us in our souls that we are Yours, if we are. That we are not yours if we aren't. Call us in in just the appropriate way. Call those who don't believe and make it apparent to them and call them to faith. And us who do, we who do, Lord, call us to believe again. To trust all of our lives to you. To say goodbye to the things that we live for and bank on and trust in And cling only to Jesus. Spirit of God, we need Your witnessing work in us for that to happen because to let go of the things we hope in, we must have someone more trustworthy in which we can hope, and that is Jesus. So help us to to know Him and to know that He is trustworthy. Witness that to us, I pray. To each one of my brothers and sisters here, in the particular places they are, speak that to them. God, we need your help. God, I have feeble words this morning. Would you own them and make them yours? Open up your scriptures. Make them live. Make them run through us and and convict us and change us. And would you from them, Lord, produce Create, build here a church 
that is yours in, in a profound way. God, a simple message, would you own it and would you change us that Christ would be glorified in our midst here and then from us elsewhere and that we would be blessed living lives laid down for Him. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. This morning we turn to the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And as we do so, we come to a section of this letter that some have called the pinnacle of the whole letter. Now, I suppose that's a matter of discussion. There are a number of high points in the letter, but, but this is certainly one that Paul's been building towards for a little while. And it is, this and next week's section are kind of a conclusion to the first part of the book. You'll notice that at the beginning of chapter 5, we turn to, to in a sense, more subjects. He's been working for a long time, as we've seen, on this, on this first main issue of division in the church at Corinth. We've been addressing that for quite some time. This church in its pride was separated into various factions of different sorts, sometimes separating from other Christians following particular leaders, and sometimes the church as a whole separated from the leaders, from Paul or from others. And pride was behind that. A pride that says, I am what I I think about. I am what I am centered on. I am what I pursue. I've forgotten about the gospel. No, I haven't forgotten about it. But I've left it off. I've forgotten. I don't live with it. It front and centers the controlling vision of my life. And I'm about myself and about what I gather from the world around me. That that perspective led to all kinds of problems. For them, it leads to all kinds of problems for us. So we've been talking for a long time about divisions and about the, the centrality of the gospel. What we see today in this passage, in the middle of chapter 4, is another piece of the gospel, a piece about lifestyle. What the gospel means when it connects to, to life and how I actually live. What is appropriate for us, given that we are people claimed by Christ, people who embrace the cross in our theology It should mean something in our lifestyle as well. So we look at that today. And and I think, I think that specifically for us as a church, this is important for us, and it is very certainly important for the American church at large. The American church at large, and I think us too, we have largely misunderstood something very important about the cross. By and large, we have turned the message of Christianity into a message that helps me live my best life now. That enables me to advance myself and and excel and become good, successful, powerful, acclaimed, People build things called churches on this message. People write books on this message. Embrace this Christianity thing and you will excel and become great. Corinthians would have been perfectly at home in much of the American church. Paul wouldn't have been, but the Corinthians would have been. 
We have largely adopted, we, we have a mindset of what is sometimes called a theology of glory. That because of what has happened, this now helps us live in glory now, already. And in fact, what is true is that because of this, this now helps us live in suffering and in humility now. And glory later. We have to hear this. And it is just possible that Paul's, Paul's way of speaking this morning will bite you. Because it is kind of biting. Because he knows those to whom he is speaking and knows they need to be nipped. So his language this morning is a little sharp, maybe even a bit sarcastic. To make a point that I hope we hear. Let me read the passage and then I need to work through it to, to explain some details because there are a couple things that might not be readily apparent to us as we read it with our 20th century eyes. Make a couple of details clear and then I'll move to make some points from the text. So let, let me read the passage. And, and may it fall on you. This is 1 Corinthians six, 4, verses 6 through 13. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The word of the Lord. That's an interesting passage. The word of the Lord. Paul's apostleship right there. He and the apostles. The scum of the earth. Well, the passage begins in 6 and 7. I need to walk through and make a couple of details clear. 6 and 7 is a transition paragraph that, that could have been attached to what came before. And it leads us into what we now see. Paul says that he's applied all these things to himself and Apollos. Well, what things? Well, the stuff that he's been talking about since the middle of chapter 3, where he's been talking about the, the ministers, the, the role of servants in, in Christ's church. And he's been talking about these things, he says, to help them learn something. 
to teach them to not go beyond what is written, probably referring to the the various scripture passages that he quotes against boasting and against pursuing human worldly wisdom. Encouraging them to to pursue a servant heart attitude, to have the gifts that have been given to you to use them to build the church. But you're not like that, he says. You're puffed up. Boasting of one against the other. This man's superior against him, and I'm superior for having realized that. And the gifts that I have, uh, strangely, he says, though you receive them, why do you boast as if you're something? Oh, Corinthians. Problem he underlines there twice, pride. It, it hangs on them everywhere. Pride. Pride in what they know. Pride in who they follow. Pride in what they are and what they do. Why do you boast? You're engaging with Christianity as if it is about lifting you up. Making much of you. Corinthians. And it starts to get really sharp in verses 8 and following. He lays out a contrast here between two different lifestyles. That of, of himself and, and the apostles and that of the Corinthian church. And it's not just a contrast for information's sake. He's not just trying to inform them of how they live and how he lives, or us of those various lifestyles. Verse 14, and and 14 and following is very similar. I I stopped at 13 because of length. But they're very similar points. The passages could hang together very well. 14 makes clear, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's making clear this is a warning an admonishment. Then the next verse, uh, 16, then says, I urge you then be imitators of me. It's a warning about where you're going and a call as to where you should go. This is not just for information's sake. He's contrasting two lifestyles and he speaks tongue firmly in cheek. Almost sarcastic. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you've become kings. What's not readily apparent to us is that he's grabbed terms right off of a first century self-help brochure. And he's turning them and pushing them back across the table. You recall back, back in chapter 1 we talked about the culture of Corinth and how it was just filled with various teachers and philosophers who would stand on the street corner or occupy halls, go on the radio talk shows, and and dispense information about how to make life work and how to have a prosperous existence and and what wisdom really was and and how you could be intelligent in pursuing business and relationships, etc., etc., etc. One of those guys, experts point out, a Stoic philosopher named Diogenes, whose tomb was in Corinth, had taught his disciples to say, I alone am rich. I alone reign as king. That that could have been today in America. I mean, man, that's amazing, isn't it? You should say, let me encourage you to build up your self-esteem and attack your view of the world by saying to yourself and others, I alone am rich. I alone have become a king. And Paul takes that and says, yes, you guys have. You have arrived. Wow. You're already there. He 
didn't grab those terms out of thin air. He pulls them out of the values of the culture and points out how much they have become the values of the church also and says, yes, you have. You've pursued it and you've got it, all right. Nice job. Already you have this. And that word already is important to understand too. He uses it twice in verse 8. It's a huge part of the problem. Because, catch this, the gospel does, does it not? It does attain for Christians a royal lineage, a full satisfaction, fullness of joy even. It does guarantee us a stake in and carries us to a place where there is no shortage, where there is no loss, where there is no sorrow, where everything is marvelous and wonderful. We are going there one day. Not yet. The problem is the already. Corinthians have taken that message and understand there's no way they could have misunderstood that. Just like there's no way we misunderstand that. Paul was there for 18 months. There's no way they could have confused him with Diogenes. There's a reality coming out there. And the problem is they, like we often do, taken all that and said, you know what I want is I want that now already. I want a life that's full of riches and influence and power and comfort and ease right now. That's what they want. That's what they're pursuing. They're stuffed full of it. And the other half of the contrast, the apostles know nothing of it. You have all this without us. Unfortunately, we poor apostles are in a little different spot. Fools and weak and whatnot, but but the thing that I need to point out at this point is is what verse 9 is talking about. And some translations add a little bit in so you can kind of see this a little better. Paul is alluding to the gladiatorial games in verse 9. When he talks about God exhibiting us last of all, he's referring to a procession that would file into the arenas throughout the Roman world where spectators would gather to, for fun, in an afternoon, watch men kill each other. This, this is taking, you know, fight club to a whole other level. Brutal as that is, this is actually about killing each other. Sometimes you'd fight wild animals, sometimes they'd fight each other. And, and if you did well, you could live to fight another day. And if you were a gladiator and you fought well for a long time, you could retire and actually live through the process. But those who were last in line when the procession filed into the theater, those who were last in line were the condemned criminals. They weren't getting out of this alive. Instead of just being executed for fun, let's make them fight and let's watch them die. So they come in last, and if they win the first fight, they fight again, and they fight again until weakened, they eventually succumb to it. And everybody knows, those people filing in last are the condemned ones They're going to die today. And Paul says, God has put us last in line to be a spectacle for the world.
killed to the cheers of the satisfied, rich, ruling, powerful, honored, wise people in the crowd. That's the contrast. A church high and mighty and proud and desiring and pursuing a Christianity, and I put that in quotes, that lifts them up and elevates them while their leaders, those who planted the church, know only a Christianity that humbles them and brings to them a daily death. Paul expresses all of that for the sake of a warning to instruct on this point, I'm going to summarize it in this sentence, my main point for this morning. The cross must shape our lives or we're fooling ourselves. I know it's not a real theologically astute sentence, but I just want to make a simple point. The cross must shape our lives, not just our theology. It must shape our lives or we're fooling ourselves. I could have put it in a quotation in the words of the German pastor and author Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote, When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer's words. When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Or I could have put it in Jesus' words, When he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And Luke says, daily and follow me. If you want to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life now, daily, you will find it. The cross must shape our lives if we're fooling ourselves. It cannot remain something we simply profess while still living lives centered on ourselves, seeking to lift up and exalt me. That's the main point I want to unpack and make a couple of observations. And the first one is really the main one. I really, I really kind of have like one and a half observations. The first one is dealing with most of the, the, the text I just hope that we see this. I mean, it's simple. I mean, it's not hard to intellectually grasp. The whole battle is, will this be us or not? It's of tremendous importance. God calls His people to live lives of dying to ourselves and living for Him. God calls us to that. And, And not as an option as one way a Christian can pursue life. He calls us to live lives of dying to ourselves. And and to be clear about language, when we talk about dying to something, what that means is that the thing you die to, it's it's figurative language, obviously. What it means is that that thing no longer has has decisive influence. It's no longer determinative for your life. It's no, no powerful deciding factor. Not that you're completely unaware of it. It just doesn't control you anymore. So when talking about dying to self, the concept of what I want, of what I think, of what makes me feel good, I'm aware of those things. I understand what I want. I understand what I think would make me feel good. I understand what 
what attracts me, but I die to that in that it no longer exerts control over me and determines how I live moment by moment, day by day. That's what I mean by dying to self. God calls His people to live that life. The passage makes it clear and it also makes clear the church isn't living like that. It's the goal 6 and 7 are talking about are kind of attacking the puffed up, boasting attitude that's in Corinth, which is all about self. If you're puffed up and you're boasting, you are about yourself. It's pride. That's been the problem all throughout. It's, he's clear about it there, but then obviously in 8 and following, it's really sharp about that. And I've sketched this out once, but, but hear this. You've got to feel the force of this. And keeping in mind, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to warn you. Shame's not the end goal. But may God give us grace to comprehend this. This is a glaring weak spot in American Christianity. Maybe in yours, in your life. Verse 8 is the opposite of dying to self. It is self-advancement. It is the, it is the deliberate pursuit of self. That I would find my riches, that I would find my satisfaction, my fullness, that I would find my, my kingship, my, my power and influence. Paul says, man, you've already arrived. Well, actually, not really. You know, would that you did reign, that we would reign with you, he says in the middle of verse 8. And follow the, the flow of thought that is laced with pointed irony. As apostles, as heads of the church, strange thing, God has done, God, it isn't just that it's shaken out this way, God has done this. And if God's done this with the heads of the church, the founders, He means for the people to follow. So that's what down in verse 16. God has done something totally different. He has sentenced us to die as a spectacle in front of the world. We are fools for Christ's sake. In this context, what does fools mean? Do you remember? It doesn't mean they're silly. Folly, foolishness, wisdom, all that through the past few chapters has been circling around the idea of the gospel. And what Paul is saying is that we are fools for Christ's sake. We hold so tenaciously to the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ crucified to pay for sin, which is insane to people. But we hold to that so clearly and so resolutely that the world regards us as morons. Rejects us out of hand. Not you guys though. You want to be wise in your Christianity. So you first process this by what will people accept and then you embrace that. We are weak. And in disrepute, and we don't have anything. Verse 11, even now we, we, though you are rich, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and we don't have any place to lay our heads. God's put us in that place. Not you guys. God's put us in that place though. 
Now, I realize you think that leaders that have the mark of, of the king of all the universe on them would be able to deal with those who oppose them, wouldn't they? So when people revile us, should we not rise up and strike them, but instead we humbly turn the other cheek and we go and we entreat them and seek to work things out, even though they hate us and persecute us and buffet us, beat us. We bless them. We are like the scum of the earth in their eyes. And Paul's searching for the lowest possible term he could find. What, what he's getting at? The stuff that people scrape off their shoes. That's us. Not you guys, I know. We are that. Just us, us apostles and Jesus, who himself had nothing, was reviled and finally led out to die a spectacle. So we're like that. Jesus is like that. Not you guys, though. I don't want to accuse you of that. You are rich, powerful, influential. You have arrived already. I don't say this, he says in 14, to shame you. One commentator said, that would be shameful. That's kind of... That is sort of shame-inducing, which is probably why he has to follow up immediately and say, I'm not seeking as the end goal your shame, but I am trying to wake you up. Judge for yourselves, brothers and sisters, which lifestyle matches Jesus. Just judge for yourselves. I warn you, you're on the wrong path when you're pursuing Christianity as if it is something designed by God to lift you up and make much of you now. It isn't. It is not. Jesus Himself as Exhibit 1, the Apostles as Exhibit 2. Which life matches what Jesus said? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Me. Which life matches faithfulness to a gospel that is folly in the eyes of the world? If you're faithful to that, you will know persecution in this world. You will. God calls His people to live lives of dying to ourselves, not of advancing ourselves and lifting ourselves up. That's clearly the point here. Brothers and sisters, I, I just lay that at, at your feet and say, judge for yourselves which life matches Jesus, which life matches the cross, and which life are you living? God has called and means for us to follow Him into a life marked by the cross, marked by suffering and dying. And any church or any Christian that thinks of following Jesus into luxury and ease and public acclaim and comfort and respect in this life already is severely deluded, fooling ourselves.
He calls us to that, brothers and sisters. So ask yourself, which side of the ledger are you on? And, and, and be very careful. Be very careful when you do. Because what this is not meaning is that there is something inherently better in being poorly dressed, buffeted, rebuked, homeless. There are plenty of poorly dressed, homeless people who are enemies of God, too. There's nothing inherently better about that. So the point is not, I need to run out of here and sell my house right now. It's not the point. The point is, what's your perspective? What, what, what's the love inside of you? What do you love? Because another way I could have put this is, I, I thought about framing this in, in the context of the greatest commandment, the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, not yourself. Love the Lord and your neighbor, which is deny yourself. I could have put it in that context too. That's the issue. What's going on in here? What do you love in here? Not what kind of things do you have. What you love in here will determine what you have, what you do with the things that you have, what you pursue. But the issue is in the heart. It's a question of what you love And this is our great challenge because it calls for faith. We can very clearly with our eyes see the the payoff of a big screen TV. I will put this thing in my den. I will sit there and I will enjoy sports all day long. I, I get that. That'll be fun. I hear that. But you're telling me, God, that if I, set, if I die to my own desires, in this case, to, to sit around and watch sports in front of a big screen TV, just picking something, if I die to that and maybe use that time or maybe use those resources in some other thing, maybe I give them away to someone, that that will actually be good for me? I don't understand that. How's that? It seems like the good life for me would be the TV. Why do you call me to that? I, I, don't, I don't understand. It requires faith. Now, I'm going to answer the, the, the why question is my, my half point that I'm going to come to in a second. But to see the call, to see the, the word come out from God, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, is difficult for us to embrace because it requires faith. And it works against how our hearts work. Our hearts are bent towards idolatry. We are bent towards seeing what I can gather in my own hands to satisfy my own life because I can control that. I'm bent that way. And you're calling me to let all of that go and follow you into what? Public ridicule and scorn and abuse? What? That's where this gets hard for us. And why I, I just pray that God will grab you and say, follow me. Trust me. 
When I say, deny this life and you will find a life, I'm not lying to you. And when I say, if you hold on to this life, you will not live, I'm not lying to you. Trust me. So, so may He, may He speak to you. And may He, may He poke you. What do you cling to? Answer it in your mind. What won't you give up? What I'm asking to think about the, the die to self, the self that I won't die to. What is it? Maybe it's something material in which you find security or pleasure. Maybe it's something interpersonal, like respect or being understood or loved by those around you. I think that for some of us, for me, a big one is the issue of time. I find it less challenging to give up my right to be respected and to accept from someone scorn or abuse in some way. And I find it less challenging to give up money even I get tight-fisted with my time. To give up my actual life, not just the stuff in my life, that's very difficult for me. I don't know, but I think that's an issue for us. So ask yourself maybe, do you view the use of your time as a you thing, as For you, for yourself. Or do you think, I've been given time to serve God and other people. To love God and to love other people with my time. Which do you pursue more commonly? The cross must mark our lives. Which means everything else has to take a back seat. God calls His people to live lives of dying to ourselves and living for Him. Why does He do that? This brings me to my second point. Which I said, as I said, is a little shorter. But I'm going to, so I'm going to go there. But I I do want to say, I feel, as I, as I was thinking about this and I was writing this, and even as I'm preaching it now, I feel a certain sense of inadequacy in actually addressing the specifics of what this would mean for you. So in a way, I'm trusting God to make it real for you. And I'm asking you, please think through. What do you hold on to? I have to trust God to fill in the gaps there. Second observation. And I'm going to attempt to answer the why question that for me comes up in verse 9. When he says, God has exhibited, I want to ask why. Why has God done this? The answer 
God calls us to die to ourselves for the sake of Christ's honor in the world. God calls us to die to ourselves for the sake of Christ's honor in the world. You might add in hyphen, which is also our joy. It's just hinted at in verse 10, where he says, We are fools for Christ's sake. We are fools for Christ. I'm going to expand on that. It's, it's only hinted at there. I, I don't say that he answers this question thoroughly in this passage. It's hinted at, and I'm going to expand on it. And I want to be briefer here, but I think it's helpful to think about why in reinforcing the, the what. What am I supposed to do? And do Why? And I'm summing it up as for the sake of His honor in the world. And initially we should consider how Christ is honored in the spreading of the message about Him. The spreading of the message of the Gospel in evangelism and missions. Now, there's a very real way that if I die to myself, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be giving up my resources and my ownership of my time, which is going to free up a whole bunch of stuff to be committed to the spreading of the Word of, of God. This is a very real way that has a practical, tangible, resource-based answer. Christ is going to be more honored as I have more resources and more time to spread Word of Him. But I want to lean on something else. The message of the cross is spread and Christ is honored best when it is carried by a crucified life. Think about this. Follow what I'm saying here. That the message of the cross is most clearly expressed and Christ is most clearly honored in that when it is coming out of the mouth of someone who is a crucified person, someone who is dying to themselves. Think of how this works. At the heart of the gospel is a crucified Messiah. Killed by God the Father in judgment of the world. Raised after death to a new life of approval and blessing. Which says that the world as it is right now rests under God's judgment. How can one credibly say The world as it is rests under God's judgment while you are embracing the world as it is. And living in pursuit of what the world pursues and valuing what the world as it is values. Seeking to build a life yourself based on the things in the world that you just said are under the judgment of God. person who is living as I have already become rich, I have become a king, I am powerful because of these things that God condemns, is speaking a contradiction. doesn't make any sense. What comes out of your mouth is immediately undercut by your life. What the gospel is speaking of is a condemnation of this system 
and lifting up of one who himself promises to be the thing that sustains our hearts. And that message has credibility as he is the one sustaining my heart. If I find him to be my joy in the midst of all circumstances, if I find that I can live buffeted and rejected and scorned as a fool, sorrowing in that but ever rejoicing in God, that's a message the world does not know. And when I say that comes from Christ, there's a credibility in my life added to that word. Christ is most honored. The gospel is most clearly expressed when it comes out of the mouth of someone who is living a life laid down. A crucified life. A life of dying to self. That's how we can speak of a man of sorrows who is acquainted with suffering in a sin-cursed world, if we ourselves are people of sorrows acquainted with suffering in a sin-cursed world, finding our joy in God. So for the sake of Christ's honor, God calls us to be acquainted with sorrows in the sin-cursed world. which pretty closely connects to something else we should think about. For the sake of Christ's honor, not just in missions and evangelism, but for the sake of Christ's honor in my own life, in my own sanctification. I'm just already almost talking about it. Why does He call me, why does He call you to live a life of dying to yourself and of finding your, your life in Him? That's good for you. It's to your great joy. Everything else that you might build your life on, your your health, it's going to pass. All the stuff that you have, all of the wealth that you acquire, even if you manage to hold on to it all during this life, you're going to leave it on the table when you die, aren't you? All of those things are temporary and they are fleeting. And they don't actually satisfy you anyway. And so when He calls you to live a life of dying daily, He's actually calling you to your best life now even. Let alone then. Now. As He's calling you to live off of Him who is invisible but more real than all the stuff you have. And it is paltry, false teaching to say really what God means to do is give you health and wealth. That's His blessing to you. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's a false hope. If that's what He was after in your life, He would not be loving you. He loves you too much to leave you thinking you have already arrived because you have a truckload of money and you're healthy, wealthy, and wise. He doesn't leave you there. He puts you deliberately in places. He calls you to come to with Him into places 
where that gets cut away from you. Maybe it's a little bit like, like bandwidth. If, if you have, if I understand these things properly, we only have so much bandwidth and you've got to take something off before you put something else in. If he takes this off, he can add in more of himself. Which is what you really want, which is what you were made for. He sifts sin out of you and pride out of you and makes you humble. He turns your eyes off of yourself and onto Him. This is what your heart was made for. So Christ is honored out there. Christ is honored in here. And Christ is honored actually everywhere. So not just thinking about interaction with non-Christians. Think about interactions amongst the body, in your family. Think how Christ would be honored, for those of you who are married, think how Christ would be honored in your marriage if when slandered you entreated. Verse 13. Rather than got more angry or counter-slandered. The only way you can entreat, go to a person and seek to resolve the problem, the only only way you can do that is if you've died to yourself and died to the right to be respected and understood and loved. Setting that aside, I don't need that. I mean, it'd be good, it'd be right, but I don't need it. I have something else sustaining my heart. Christ, who is honored to be the one who sustains my heart. And then you go and, and your marriage has changed. Or your relationship with that brother or sister in the church has changed as you go and entreat Resolve the problem. God does all that on purpose. He calls us to lives of dying to ourselves for the sake of Christ's honor in the church and in my life and in the world out there. He wants you to die. And He promises you that you'll find your life Do you believe Him or not? That's the question. I don't think there's anything that's... I don't, I don't think there's anything that's remotely complicated about Paul's contrast here. It's rather blunt and rather simple. The question, church, is do we believe Him and will we give up our lives? Or will we cling to it? And to get there, our only hope is the prayerful preaching of the cross. This, you'll recall, is at the end of three and a half chapters where he has, in one way or another, been lifting up the message of the cross. Shortly, he's going to move on to other stuff. This is his lifestyle that follows on the theology. This is his lifestyle that is fueled by the theology, by this message of the cross expressed to us and remembered. But I say prayerful preaching of the cross because it requires the grace of God to come in and and actually move you to believe it. As I said earlier, 
right in front of us is all the promises and the benefits of the world and to, to lay those aside in faith and believe that following after Him, I will actually find my life. God, help us to believe that. So prayerfully, we preach the cross and invite ourselves and one another to come and embrace it and walk after Christ dying. And if we don't do that, we're fooling ourselves. This is the message of Christianity. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him do this, he does not say, if anyone would want to be a super Christian, let him come after me. If anyone would come after me, the only way to come after me is dying. Some in the church in Corinth, some in churches across America, some perhaps here, find this hard to do, ridiculous, because you haven't become a Christian. And if that's you, I, go to the cross, embrace Jesus' death on the cross for your sin, become a Christian. For the rest of us. He invites you to die and find your life. Trust Him when He promises you He'll give it to you. Let me pray. God, I pray, I ask You, would You take this simple message and make it real to us? Would You produce here, in this place, a church that is humble and that lays down its own demands and its own rights. Father, would you produce Christians here, individual Christians here who are like that? Would you produce families that are like that? And then a church. We need your work in us to make your promise of life believable, frankly. We live in a world, Lord, you know, we, we live in a world that offers us so much, dangles in front of us so many things that are enticing. And I pray that you would, in those moments, in the particular things that my brothers and sisters struggle with, that you would show yourself faithful and you would show yourself to be the real joy, the real life. Do that in the ways we need it, I pray. And would Christ be honored here in our midst. pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.